task. I said our. I didn't say mine. I didn't say yours. I said our task. Because one of the things that we talked about several weeks ago now was the fact that we believe in the ministry of all believers. We are all called to be a part of that priesthood of all believers that Peter talks about. The holy nation. And our task as we minister to one another. I love what I read a few weeks ago. It's become a part of me. I speak of it almost every time I talk to somebody. I brought it up in my message yesterday. I brought it up in my prayer on Wednesday night at the close of visitation for my aunt. Our task is to comfort the troubled and to trouble the comfortable. Yesterday, I was called upon to bring comfort to the troubled, which included myself. But at the same time, in the midst of comforting the trouble, there was the need to trouble those who had found comfort in the platitudes of false theology. The cliches. The little sayings such as God needed another angel. As if God needs anything. Or even worse, that this evil that came upon my grandson and my granddaughter that the death of Jedekiah was somehow a part of God's will. And so I told those who were there, citing the example of Job himself. Job chapter 13, verse 5. After the friends had gone through their first round of reasons why Job should understand the struggles he's going through, the discomfort, the pain, the loss of his children, how finally Job said in exasperation, Oh, that you would keep silent. In other words, just sit there in silence as you did when you first came. Those first seven days and seven nights. And that would be your wisdom. What a day this is. Now my computer doesn't even want to move. There we go, I think. Excuse me. We're back, I think. Listen to me, please. Read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 sometime later when you have a chance. Because I want you to know that I fully believe that we are in a battle. And don't think that what Paul calls the schemes of the devil don't think that they're not in full force 
around us today. And here's the point. We can't afford to sit back passively and watch as things fall apart all around us. As the integrity of marriage and the family are attacked. As the reality of the fact that God created a male and a female. And there's no question when the baby's born, when the doctor delivers the baby, whether it's a male or a female. Now we're in a battle for the truth, and so Paul reminds us that we will. We will be, and he uses the word wrestling. It's a word for a struggle, a battle. We will be wrestling with this present darkness. Which includes what he calls the spiritual forces of evil. And so Paul calls for us to put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. So that we can, he says, withstand in the evil day. You know what? It doesn't surprise me that Christians are struggling and failing and falling. Because I have found, as I have gone around to other churches, as I've been a part of different services, that the majority of Christians are biblically illiterate. I took a class several years ago and my books were stacked. And one of the kids, I don't remember which one it was, said, Dad, you have to read all of those books for this one course? And I said, I not only have to read all of those books, but I have to be ready to answer any questions in the material in all of those books. And I'm going to tell you, for that three-hour graduate course, I had far more pages to read than the pages in the book of my, books of my Bible. been a blessing to me. Because when I came here four and a half years ago, I decided that every year I was going to read the Old Testament twice and the New Testament at least four times. Every year. And I've done that. Okay, we'll see and experience my door being closed sometimes. My wife will come down. We'll leave it open. It's, it doesn't have to be open or closed. But often in the morning, the first thing we do is we not only read it with our eyes, but we listen to it with our ears. So that God's Word is coming in through two different channels. We've got to know God's Word to be God's people. Paul says we need to put on that whole armor and it includes the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. And notice that Paul says that we need that shield because we're going to need to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. In that day, those soldiers, they didn't just fire arrows. They fired arrows that had fire on them. So that if your shield wasn't wet, 
and prepared, it would stick and catch the shield on fire. We need the helmet of salvation. What that means is we need the knowledge that we are a part of the family of God, that we have been saved. Because you know what? A lot of times our feelings are out of line. We have to correct our feelings by means of the truth. I often hear people say, well, I feel. And I say, you know what? I'm not really sure I care what you feel if what you feel contradicts God's Word. The truth is more important than the feelings that we have. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the Spirit. By the way, that is the first offensive weapon named. And it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Which he goes on to say, which is the Word of God. The Spirit interpreting, translating, guiding us into the Bible. The Word of God. And then, we've got to make sure we don't forget that we need to be praying at all times. Now let me tell you this. Anybody who has told you that living the Christian life is easy hasn't tried to live the Christian life. <coughs> as it's written in His Word. It's not going to be easy. Scripture says it's not going to be easy. In fact, Scripture says that if you're not facing trials and temptations, if there's not persecution going on, because the Bible says those things will take place for believers. So if they're not, the only logical conclusion is that if you're not being persecuted and having trials and temptations, you're not living the life of a true believer. We used to have a sign in our locker room. Often, they were signs that were in the weight room or the training room. And the sign said simply, no pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. Why? Because growth necessitates pain. No pain, you don't grow. Very few people I love as much or even close to as much as my mother. But one of the things that aggravated me about my mother, and it was an aggravation that came from love, is that if the doctors told her to lift her foot ten times and she got to seven and she felt pain, she wouldn't push through the pain. And so seven, as you're aware, became six, which became five, which became a wheelchair because she wouldn't push through the pain. Often healing involves pain. One of my favorite commercials was that old commercial where somebody would take a big slate of Listerine and gargle 
and then say, I hate it, but I love it. Because <laughs> it burns. But it kills those germs. It keeps us from having other issues and problems. And that's why I refer to it as the pain that's involved in growth and healing. And I've chosen as a text for today's message a message titled Being Salt and Light. A portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So I want to read God's Word because Jesus Himself said that it's important that we are living in such a way that people may see our good works. So let's turn together. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading today from the... NIV, because I don't have the verses up on the screen. Matthew chapter 5. And I'm actually going to start with verse 11. Blessed are you Blessed are you when people insult you. Really? You ought to heard what that guy said to me. Why? He treated me like... Blessed are you when people insult you. Persecute you. Falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me. In other words, not because of what you're doing on your own, but what you're doing on behalf of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You, listen, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. In the passage that we just read, I believe, as John Stott has in his little book that I recommended, I believe that there are, in fact, four truths about the church collectively and about us individually that are demonstrated in these verses. And the first one is that we are to be radically different. Radically different. Jim, my buddy back there, is well versed in the King James Version. And he'll quote passages from the King James Version. And I love to hear him quote those verses. And in the King James Version, when Peter talks about us being a holy nation, a peculiar people, 
That's what he says. Peculiar. Different. Very different. Light is radically different from darkness. In fact, when light appears, darkness disappears. Exposing, illuminating the true nature of things. Any of you been down in Mammoth Cave like I have or another cave? One of the things those guides always do is they take you to an area where they turn off the lights and you can't see your hand in front of your face. And then the guide demonstrates the fact that all it takes, and he lights a lighter, all it takes is one little light and the total darkness disappears. Now, it's not the illuminating light that you would want to read by. It's not the illuminating light that lets you distinguish between dark greens and blacks. But when light appears, darkness disappears. Often, as a parent, we'll go into the room where our child is troubled and scared and unable to sleep. And the only thing we need to do sometimes is just turn on the light and say, see, those aren't monsters in your closet. That was just the way the shadows were playing tricks. And we close the closet door. And sometimes we turn on a little nightlight. We snuggle them. And we put them back to sleep. And just as the same way, salt is radically different. And brings a halt. Brings a, a stop a de, a, to the decay and the rot that are taking place in unsalted items. Have you ever wondered how those hams can just hang there in those little country markets down in Kentucky without spoiling? Right out there in the open air. You know what? Even the flies leave them alone. You know why? If you've never taken a bite of Kentucky ham, then you need to get somebody that knows how to fix it because they'll fix it in a good way so that some of it is uh, taken out. But you can't get it all out. And as soon as you take a bite of it, you'll know what it is that is different about it. And you'll be able to tell somebody what's different after you've had a few glasses of water to drink. Because it is salty. And that saltiness preserves the meat. It doesn't allow rotten decay to happen. One of the major themes of the Bible is that God has and He is calling for Himself a people who are willing to come out to be the ecclesia, the called out ones. The church. People who Paul often described as holy, as saints. And that means set apart. Different. One of my passages that I love, it's a go-to passage for many different things. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing, holy and acceptable to God. And that's your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be metamorphosized. That's the word he uses. Transformed. Just like that caterpillar goes into the cocoon, but comes out a beautiful butterfly. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and by testing you can discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's he saying? Be different. One of the things that breaks my heart is watching young people who really know they probably shouldn't do something, but when they get around others who are doing it, they don't know how to say no. The peer pressure overtakes them, and there they are, joining in, doing just what the others are doing. We're to be different. We're to be so different that we are, Paul used the phrase, a living sacrifice. He realized that the people who heard that would have said, What? A sacrifice is something that's killed. Put on an altar. Burn up. How can you be a living sacrifice? Well, the way is, is you can be so determined to be a Christian that you're willing to be different and you're willing to walk around as someone who is willing to take persecution and punishment and abuse and name-calling and all of that and feel good about it because you're doing it for our Lord. Secondly, in this passage, another truth that's pointed out is the fact that we need to permeate society. Though we are to be holy, though we are to be distinct, we're not to be socially segregated. He says, you are to let your light so shine. The light needs to penetrate the darkness. Did you hear the call to worship that Jesse read this morning? God is light. And we're to be walking in the light. No darkness. Don't light your lamp, Jesus says, and put it under your bed or in some dark cupboard. Instead, put your light right out there on a lampstand and let it shine. In other words, let the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, spread throughout society by your words and by your deeds. There's a man that I love dearly. He was a father figure to me. When something happened, I called him one day and I went up and he and I sat on a bench down by the Kankakee River. And I just thought on it. George Keller. What a man of God. And I watched one night in a Bible study as George had tears streaming down his face because of something that had happened the week before. One of the guys that he had worked with for over 20 years said to him, 
George, there's something about you that's different. With a smile on his face. George said, I looked at him and I said, well, maybe it's the fact that I'm a Christian. And I love my Lord. And the man said, really? You're a Christian? I am too. The two had been working together for 20 years. And neither of them had ever opened up and shared about the fact of what Christ has done in their lives. And George, with tears running down his face, said, I have told God over and over again how sorry I am for not being that kind of a witness at work. Not just with my way I'm living, but also openly and proudly with the words I'm saying. And similarly, salt does absolutely no good while it's still in the shaker. It has to penetrate the meat. Just as a lamp does no good if it's stowed in a cupboard, salt does absolutely no good if it stays in the salt shaker. The light has to shine into the darkness. The salt has to soak into the meat. Both examples that Jesus chose illustrate the process of penetration. And therefore, they call you and I to permeate society. And Jesus didn't say, if you are the salt, if you are the light. He said, you are the salt. You are the light. Yet too many of us hide away in a dark little cupboard and stay snug in our elegant little pretty shakers, not letting other people know the truth about Jesus Christ and what He's done in our lives. There yesterday with a young who came up and gave me a hug. And he said, thank you for your message. I don't know how you did it. And I said to him, Ziggy, I couldn't have done it if I didn't know that there's life after death. And that someday, someday, Little Jedekiah will welcome me and say, Great Grandpa, you finally made it. This is who I really am. So just as a lamp has no value if it's hidden in an enclosed basket and under the bed, and just as a salt is of no value if it remains in the shaker, listen to me. You and I are of absolutely no value if we're not living the Christian life, if we're not being salt to the people around us, and if we are not bringing light. I have said over and over again, and I'll say it right now in front of you as your minister. If somebody proved to me tomorrow that there is no God and that the story of the Bible is not true, you are looking at one of the meanest men that ever lived.
And if things got too bad, I would have no problem at all if there's no life after death in checking out and moving on. So what gives me a reason for living each day is I know there is a Creator God who loves us so much that He brought His Son to this earth and He allowed that Son to die for me so that I could have abundant life and I could have life eternal. And I have to be a light to others. I have to bring salt to the blandness of their lives. But let's think positively for a second. Because it's very tempting at times to give up and to sit back passively. But I want you to know the third truth that I see in these passages, these verses, is that we can influence and change society. Salt and life, light are both effective. They change the environment into which they're introduced. When salt's introduced into meat or fish, something happens. The bacterial decay is hindered. How many of you, to be honest now, how many of you have had a really bad sore throat and everything the doctors did didn't help a bit, but when you gargled with salt water, all of a sudden things started changing. It kills the bacteria. It works. And in fact, Scott points out in the book, by the way, light and salt are kind of complementary. One's a negative, the other's a positive. Salt stops things from happening. Although it starts high blood pressure and changes the flavor of the meat, but it stops the decay in the rot. And light is positive. And as Christians, in the society in which we live, we are to be both negative, checking the spread of evil, and positive, promoting the spread of truth and goodness. So let me ask you, why don't we as Christians have a more wholesome influence and effect on society? Because we're not being solid. And why? <clears throat> We look at deteriorating trends around us. We see social injustice, racial conflict, violence in the street, corruption in high places, sexual promiscuity. Who's to blame? You see, our habit is to blame everybody else except ourselves. But if the house is dark, would it make any sense to walk in the house and say, well, you stupid house, why are you so dark? does no good to blame the house, does it? What you need to do is say, hmm, maybe I should light a light. Take some action. Or if the meat goes bad or tastes very bland, no sense in blaming the meat. We just need to say, where's the salt? Sometimes at a restaurant you need to say, where's the meat? So you know where to put the salt. But if society becomes corrupt, there's no 
sense in blaming society for its corruption. That's what happens when human evil is unchecked and unrestrained. The question to ask is, where's the church? Where's the church? Where were the parents? What were they doing? I called a parent one time when I was teaching. I called not to get help. I don't need help in taking care of a troubled child. I called to find out if there was something going on in the home that if I knew about it, I could assist in a better way. And the answer I got from the parent, Mr. Latimer, if you're calling me about problems Johnny has, I have enough problems with him at home. You take care of the ones at school. Click. It's hypocritical for us to raise our eyebrows and shrug our shoulders as if it were not our responsibility. Jesus told us to be salt and light to the society in which we live. Thirdly, or am I fourthly? We have to retain our distinctiveness. We have to retain our distinctiveness. If salt's going to be effective, it has to remain salty. Otherwise, it becomes useless. He says you can't even throw it on a compost heap. That I mean, ain't going to change anything. The only thing you can do is put it out there on the dirt path and those little rocky pebbles might help to make the rock path better for you to walk on and step on it. In the same way, Light has to return its retain its brightness. We got light at the parsonage. I gotta fix it. It's one of those that I have said, honey, I'll fix it. And I will. <laughs> I got the door thing hung up on the wall, didn't I? After months. You turn the light on. And it might come on bright. But then all of a sudden it might go real dim. And you can't see enough to even know which ones you're dealing with with the clothes before you put them in the washing machine. Now, it's something either with the bulb, probably not, probably the switch. I just need to change it and fix it. But here's the point. That light needs to be bright to do its job. We have to maintain our Christian convictions and especially the values, the standards, the lifestyle that we know and have a knowledge of God. Otherwise, we're not going to have any effect and we're not going to make any impact on society. Let me conclude with this. Somebody's written, I have no reason to doubt it, that the quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. 2%. It happened with what was called the Great Awakening. It happened with the Second Great Awakening here in the United States. The camp rally movements down in Kentucky and Tennessee. Edward Everett Hale, a writer who lived in worked in Boston, Massachusetts, inspired many people with his story, Ten Times One is Ten. He says this, 
I'm only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. I had a screen that my last screen was simply going to say, we can do it. We can do it. I couldn't find a picture of the little locomotive going up the hill saying, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. Yes, said, I, I think I can, I think I can. I, I can. think I can. <laughs> so I, I just had this one that said, we can do it. Because if what Everett, Edward Everett Hale wrote is true, it's also true of an individual Christian. So how much greater, if that's true for an individual Christian, would it be for the impact of the church and what the church can make if we are living the way Christ has called us to be live? If we are being the church Christ has called us to be? And I'm going to say something you might not like. But the evidence that we have not been the church that we should be is seen right here in the empty pews. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us. Forgive us for being old, sour lemons. Forgive us for being persimmons when we should have been salt and light. Help us to be the church that You have called us to be. Light to the darkness and salt to the rotten, decaying society around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment.